A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Welcome, everyone. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode is dedicated by David Friedlander in honor of his grandfather, Joseph Fuchs, whose yard site is now on Yud Tess Nissan. Yosef was a Holocaust survivor from Czechoslovakia who settled in Sydney, Australia, and was close to Rablevi Yitzchak Greenwald, the Tselom Arav, in his youth in Europe before the war. His neshama should have an aliyah. So we're going to talk a little bit about the, um, the uh, different uh, dynasties, I don't know if we could call them dynasties, or the groups in the Hungarian rabbinate, um, that came from, all in the Greenwald family, all that came from the Arugas Habaisem, the patriarch of the family, Rabbi Maisha Greenwald, uh, Chust, or Chist, uh, the Arugas Habaisem himself, the Tselem Arav, um, Puppa, um, those, those, that area was a very interesting story uh, in pre-war Hungarian Jewry, and then in the rebuilding post-war. They're also in Satmar, they were in a few, a few places in uh, in key 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 rabbinical uh, positions in Hungary, Slovakia, Austria, today some of those places are in Ukraine. Um, so they're one of the most important families. Is the Greenwald family, rabbis, Hasidic leaders, Paiskim and Halacha, and it's also a the reason what makes it even more interesting is that it's a classic story of the shift from what's known as Oberland Hungarian. Ashkenaz Jews from the the school of the Chassam Seifer uh, version of Orthodoxy, and the shift that the family does, along with their followers, to join different Hasidic groups that uh, were popular amongst the Hungarian traditional Jewish life at the time. And that's a shift that we see today when Oberland Ashkenaz Jews is uh, slowly disappearing, unfortunately. And... Um, and there's this shift towards uh, 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 a shift towards Hasidic style uh, of community and and leadership. <coughs> Excuse me. So the Greenwald family will start with the Arugas Habayisem, and he's known so because of his sefer, his very popular halachic work, the Arugas Habayisem. Um, and he he is the father of this, you know, large. A family of which had branches all over 
all over that area of East Central Europe uh, in, in those countries before the war. His sons and grandsons and brothers and some other relatives were the leading lights in the half century before the war. And like I said, in the rebuilding of the Hungarian Jewish community in post-war Brooklyn, primarily, primarily in Para Park. So the Aruga Sabaisim is a, a Shaila Suchuvis, a responsa, uh, he authored this work on Halacha. And he was a very prominent Paisic in the area. And as were, as were all the, all the Greenwald rabbis. They were primarily known as Paiskim. And he starts off, uh, Rabbi Maisha Greenwald as a young, um, a young student in, by a student of Chassam Seifer, talking about the mid-1800s, a fellow by the name of Rabbi Nachem Katz. And he's the rabbi and he has a yeshiva in Salem. And, um, which is today in Austria. He then continues his studies by the Ksav Seifer, who was the son and successor of his father, the Chassam Seifer, uh, in the famous Preshburg Yeshiva, which was the, the main yeshiva of the whole Hungary area. Um, and he also, at the time when he's in Preshburg and he's studying by the Ksav Seifer, so he, one of his study partners is the future Reb Chaim Zunenfeld, who becomes uh, one of the leaders of, of uh, in the old Yishav in Yerushalayim, a very famous one. So he was, Arugas Abayisim was together with him. Now, what's this place called Salem? It's interesting. It's actually, the name of the town is Deutschkreuz in, in, in German. And uh, so that's that's why the Jews did not want to call it Deutschkreuz, German cross. Um, so it was called a cross. So the Jews, in their great wisdom of avoiding the name of what they felt was a very strong Christian symbolism, so they renamed the town or rechristened the town, as it were, Tzalem, or Tzalem, or Tzalem, I have to get the right pronunciation. Uh, so that, in other words, they, they, they gave it that nickname, and, and so it goes in, in Yiddish. Until today, the Jews referred to this town as Salem. If you look for it on a map, you'll never, ever find it, because in the name of the town is Deutschkreuz, and uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, and not Salem. So it was one of the, that, that town was one of the legendary, what was called the Sheva Kehilois, one of the seven communities, uh, very ancient communities, a whole story uh, of why it was called the seven communities from the medieval times. There were different princes and aristocrats who allowed Jews to live in their areas, and they were in a certain district, Eisenstadt and, 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 and uh, Matesdorf and a couple other towns. And so Salem was one of those seven towns. And, and later on in modern times, they gained renown as the heartland of, of the Oberland uh, Chassam Seifer tradition. Um, but the Aruga Sabaisim himself is the one who shifts towards Hasidism. And he becomes a follower first of the Belzer Rebbe and also Rebbe Cheskel Shrag of Shinev, who we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, the son of the Divrei Chaim. He also was affiliated with the Sigit, which is a Hungarian Hasidic group. The first two were in Galicia. So he gradually moves, he shifts from the Chassam Seifer, Oberland, Ashkenaz, to becoming a Hasid. He does not become a Rebbe. He becomes, he does not become a Hasidic leader. He's a rabbi, a rabbi of the town and a uh, but he is a Hasid. He affiliates himself with the Hasidic movement. So the Oberland to Hasidim is not a post-war phenomenon, and although it becomes much stronger after the war, but it starts already in the 1800s, and it gets much stronger in the interwar period, and the final decisive shift is what takes place after the war and what we see in our own times. So the... Um, the he... he, he um, 
his descendants were did serve as some of them served as actual Hasidic leaders. Popa became a Hasidic dynasty, and and also as communal rabbis, as was the prevalent custom in Hungary. In other words, even the ones who became Hasidic leaders, but they were first and foremost a rabbi of the town. So it's it's important to understand the background of, of how it was working in Hungary then, because I'm throwing around these terms, Oberland, Unterland, Hasidic, non-Hasidic, Hasam Seifer. There's, I think I may have touched on it in some other episodes, but it's something that's, uh, in, first of all, it's an endlessly fascinating to- topic, and it uh, somewhat defines, uh, till today, a lot of the uh, traditional Jewish world. It has a very big impact on, on our Jewish life today. Um, so the the Oberland was was a a term that the that the Jews in in Hungary and the Hung, Austro-Hungarian Empire gave to certain parts of the empire and a certain part of Hungary which was closer to Bavaria closer to Germany and that's where Jews from Germany had immigrated to in the 1800s in the 19th century and they were again, influenced by the Chassam Seifer, who himself was one of those immigrants. He himself had come, grown up in Frankfurt and then became a Rav in Matzdorf and then later in Prashburg. So he was in that area. And that was that was German Jews, Yaki Jews, and their descendants uh, continued that tradition in a very strong orthodoxy, strong traditional life. Unterland was the other side, this is the eastern side, closer to Galicia, closer to Ukraine, and the immigrants to those areas of Hungary were from from Ukraine and Galicia, where they were primarily from the Hasidic groups of that area, from Bells, from Tsans, from, you know, then Hungary developed their own Hasidic dynasties like Siget, the Ismach Meishe, uh, the Teitelbaum uh, uh, family, and uh, and they, um, they, 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 they primarily settled Transylvania in, in the eastern parts of of uh, of Hungary, Carpa- Carpathio-Ruthenian areas, which is Slovakia, Ukraine today. Uh, so that that's 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 something that eventually, because of the nature of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the multi-ethnic, um, uh, cultural, social fabric of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the fact that there was emancipation and, and Jews integrated in Austria and they got equal rights and citizenship much earlier on than their brothers in Russia, the Russian Empire, in Poland, Lithuania, and Ukraine. So they got it. They got it much earlier on in the, in the 1800s in, uh, under the enlightened uh, uh, empire of Franz Josef in Austria-Hungary. So the the nature of things was that there's there's this movement from Unterland to Eberland, there's a mixing of communities, there's there's forging up the defenses of tradition, because uh, with all this emancipation and, and equal rights, so there's a lot of integration into the surrounding society that takes place in Hungary much more than in the Russian Empire, where there was no equal rights for the Jews. So there's acculturation, there's to a certain extent assimilation, there is there is a neolog movement which was traditional Jewry of Hungary, but less orthodox, and they 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 wanted to. It was kind of similar to what the conservative Judaism was in the 1950s. They wanted to change traditional Jewish life to adapt to uh, the surrounding Hungarian society that they were in. So the small minority of Orthodox Jews living in Hungary, both in Unterland and in Oberland 
kind of in certain ways over time sort of joined forces and influenced each other. And therefore the Oberland Chassam Soifer Ashkenaz Jews influenced the Hasidim, uh, so much so that uh, in many Hasidic circles they have retroactively converted the Chassam Soifer to the Hasidic movement, which he never was. In fact, he was a bit of an opponent of the Hasidic movement. That's another story when we get to the Chassam Soifer one day. And, uh, but, but, uh, and then it went the other way also, that the the uh, Hasidic groups in Hungary also influenced and mixed with the Oberland uh, um, Jews. And therefore, there was a lot of mutual uh, influence as time passed. So if we take it back again to Ramesha Greenwald, the Aruga Sabaisim, his father passed away at a young age, and he actually found employment after he was in yeshiva, like we said, with uh, by the Ksav Seifer, the Chaim Zunnefeld. He found employment in the lumber industry to support his family. But eventually, not long after, he's still in his 20s, he joins the rabbinate. And he's a rabbi in, in several different towns. And you have to understand that the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, what the countries, like I mentioned before, Austria, Hungary, Slovakia, Ukraine, parts of Romania, parts of Poland, they're all part of this empire. So it's all the same area at the time. And if it's within the empire, you can move from place to place and take up different rabbinical positions because essentially the political borders that we recognize today are meaningless because they're all part of this larger empire. In 1893, he becomes the rabbi of Chust, or Chist. Um, today, most Jews who come from Chust don't like it when you pronounce it Chust. They say Chist. So you have to get the right pronunciation. So most of, uh, uh, so today it's in the Ukraine. And it's a very important and relatively large town, an old and prestigious Jewish community. It's in an area known as Carpathian Ruthenia. The Ruthenians are the ethnic uh, majority in that area, peasants, and lot, you know, a lot to say about Ruthenians also. So that's the geographical area that it's located in. And um, at different times, the town was in Austria, it was in Hungary, it was in Romania, it was in Czechoslovakia, it was in Ukraine, it was in Russia, and the town itself never moved, but uh, uh, that's, uh, that's, that, that's the way the borders uh, changed there. At one point, the Maharam Shik, or Maisha Shik, one of the, the closest and prime disciples of the Chassam Seifer, was the rabbi there. He was the rabbi there for the last 18 years of his life and someone whose story that we should go back to one day. Later on, Rabbi Yosef Svidushinsky, was the was the rabbi there following his stint in Galanta, and prior to his move to Yerushalayim, where he was famous as the rabbi of the Yedah Haredes in Yerushalayim. Um, so Dushinsky was the rabbi for for uh, for eleven years in in uh, in Chist. Chist. Rav Dushinsky was also an Eberlander whose descendants made the transition to Hasidim. So that's another example. Today, the Dushinsky uh, community in Yerushalayim is all Hasidic, and Rav Dushinsky himself was Eberland, who was Ashkenaz. So again, that's another story of a transition. So Rav Dushinsky was the rabbi there from 1921 till 1932. Um, there was a prominent yeshiva in Chist for much of its history. During the time of the Maram Shik, the Maram Shik had a yeshiva in Chust with several hundred students. It was one of the largest yeshivas in Hungary. And during the time that Rav Dushinsky was there, he presided also over one of the largest yeshivas in Hungary at the time. And therefore, this was true during the tenure of the Aruga Sabaisim as well. 
Several of the subsequent Greenwell generations would be rabbis, would serve as rabbis in Chust, even occasionally disputing each other for the position in the rabbinate there, which we'll get to. Now, aside from the rabbis, there was also some Hasidic leaders in Chust, from the Nadvarna dynasty, from Kaliv, they resided also in the town. So it was a large and diverse Jewish community. If we get back to the Arugas Abaisem, so he was the rabbi in Chust uh, in several capacities. He wasn't just the rabbi of the town. He was a renowned halachic decisor, a paisik uh, for the entire area, the entire district. That's why he has so many shilas and shuvas, and that he put it together in his Sefer Arugas Abaisem. He was the Rosh Yeshiva of one of, of this large yeshiva that I mentioned. Um, and many of the rabbis in Hungary, in the generation before the war, were his students. He was one of the uh, most uh, important leaders of Hungarian Jewry in two, two or three generations before the war. So many of the ones in the, right before the war were his students. Now we're used to thinking the idea of foreigner students from the United States who made the trek to Lithuania, to the yeshivas. We've heard these stories about uh, groups of Americans uh, uh, American students who went to Tells, to Mir, to, to uh, Slabatka to a certain extent, to Kletsk. There's all these like stories of, of these, you know, young, brave young men who courageously went across the ocean in the 1920s and 30s to study in the great, uh, citadels of Torah in Lithuania. Where apparently the yeshiva in Chust attracted, the, it was so prestigious and famous, that it also attracted their American students who went to, to, to study Torah and Chust in the pre-war era as well. Um, I don't know if it was when the Aruga Sabaisim was there or one of his uh, descendants, but it was definitely that yeshiva. Um, another role that he had, he was one of the leaders of Hungarian Orthodoxy at the end of the 19th and the early 20th centuries. By definition, that meant that he was a fighter for tradition because all Orthodox Hungarian uh, uh, Jewish leaders were Fighters, big fighters for tradition, no changing of customs, confronting modernity, and modernist, the modernist neologue movement that overwhelmed uh, Hungarian Jewry at the time, and orthodoxy was on the defensive, and uh, there was all this integration and acculturation and even assimilation, which was even more prevalent than the neologue movement, that was probably the majority of Hungarian Jewry. So orthodoxy in Hungary was fighting. It was fighting for survival. It was fighting on the defensive. And Ramesha Greenwald, the Arugas Abaisim, was one of those fighters and one of those leaders. And he passes away in 1910. And the Greenwald family, following his passing, becomes a veritable empire in the uh, rabbinate in that area in the last generations before, during, and after the war. So several of his brothers were rabbis at the same time, the most famous of whom was Rebeliezer David Greenwald. He authored a sefer called Karen Le David. He was a close student of his brother, who was much younger than him, and he was a rabbi in several towns, as long also as a Rosh Yeshiva of a Yeshiva in the town, uh, which we're seeing as a pattern. Among the towns that he was rabbi in was Salem. We go back to Salem, we're going to come back to it several times, and later also in Satmar. He was a rabbi in Satmar, which was also a prominent town. Um, if we go to the Aruga Sabaisim's children, so the one who succeeds him is Rabbi Yosef Greenwald, and he succeeds him as the rabbi of Chust, of Chist. And several of his other children, of, I'm sorry, of his children, of this Rabbi Ram Yosef, in other words, grandchildren of the Aruga Sabaisim, were also rabbis in the area as well. His son, Rabbi Yeshua Greenwald, was a, was a, not a direct successor, because uh, we said Rabbi Yosef Dushinsky was, uh, was the rabbi there in between. But eventually, a grandson of the Rugas Abayser, Rabbi Yeshua Greenwald, was the last rabbi of Chist through the war.
He began in his married life in Dej, another Hungarian town. He married the daughter of the Dej Rav, Rabbi Cheskel Panef, and then he was a rabbi in the town of Ungvar, which is another prominent town in the area. And then finally, following Rav Dushinsky's departure to Palestine in the 1930s, he was appointed, he was supposed to be appointed father, uh, excuse me, rabbi on his father and grandfather's position before him in Chist. But there was a problem, there was some competition. His uncle, Rabbi Yaakov Chizkiyahu Greenwald, who was another son of the Erugris Abaisim, and he was known as the Puparav, he had supporters in the town of Chist who wanted him to be appointed to the position. So who was he? We'll get to the Puparav in a second. But either way, so this was a big dispute in the town. And either way, eventually the nephew, Rabbi Yeshua Greenwald, was the one who got the appointment. Though there was a bit of a breakaway in the community as a result, the ones who supported his uncle's candidacy broke off and founded their own community, which breaking off of the, of the official community was quite a common practice in Hungary at the time for all kinds of reasons. Um, and, uh, and therefore it was not, uh, not, not, not an anomaly at, uh, at all. Uh, it was a pretty bitter dispute there. It was even a pamphlet printed by one of the sides, which was also a fairly common practice in disputes of this kind, to publish pamphlets, to buttress the position of one of the sides. So, so, but, but Rabbi Shua Greenwald, the grandson of the Arugas Abaisim, he becomes the rabbi of the main community. And the, he remains there through the war, war in the spring of 1944 with the Nazi invasion and then the massive deportation of Hungarian Jews to Auschwitz by the Nazis. He and his community and his family are all deported to Auschwitz. His, uh, his wife and child were killed. He himself managed to survive. He was one of those rare rabbis who wrote a Holocaust memoir. We don't have that too many of those, and they're all precious. They're all amazing insight as to how rabbinical thinking took place during the Holocaust. So he wrote it, which he printed in one of his halachic works, which uh, he, you know, which he wrote and published, and it's entitled Ein Dima. Uh, I guess that means the tearful eye or eyes of tears or something like that. And he returns to Budapest after the war, where he sat on a Besden to assist with the major crisis of Igunas, which was going on after the war. And then he did the same thing on a Besden in Paris, in France for a time. And finally, in the late 1940s, he immigrates to the United States. He settled in Barapak. He was one of the first Hasidic Hungarian rabbis to do so in Barapak. Most of them were still in Williamsburg or even on the Lower East Side. And he established a chist, or chust, kehila, a community. So again, it was, it was, it's not really a Hasidic group, it was a community, it was a kehila, based on the Hungarian model. That's again an important distinction to understand, um, in, again, in the Greenwald family and also of, of how it, you know, comes down to contemporary Jewish life. He remarried, he married uh, the daughter of the Vizhnitz Rebbe, the Mechaim of Vizhnitz. She had been previously married to Rav Yudel Horowitz of Jikov, who was a, one of the most interesting characters of 20th century Hasidic world, but that's for another time. But we get to the next son of the, um, the Arugas Abaisim, who I mentioned before, the Puparav, Reb Yaakov Chizkiyahu Greenwald, who was a, he was a rabbi actually in Salem also, uh, gonna keep on getting back to that, and, and some other towns. He was a Belzer Chassid, he was a Chassid of Reb, the Rebbe Rabbi Sachar Daiv of Belz, and later of his son, Reb Aaron of Belz, and in 1929 he's appointed to become the rabbi of the town of Popa. He was also the popular Rosh Yeshiva of the local Yeshiva, one of the largest, again, one of the large and prestigious Yeshivas of Hungary, Several hundred students, talking about a yeshiva of close to 300 students. And he was a very unique educator, was beloved among his students. One of his students 
who was a fellow by the name of Shlomo Lawrence, who later became a Knesset member in the State of Israel for the Agudas Yisrael party, and he wrote a very interesting profile of him with some stories, um, which uh, we'll have to save for another time, um, about his Rebbe, the Popperovin. He knew him as... Again, he was the rabbi of the town. He, he knew him as his teacher, as his teacher of Torah, as his educator, as his rebbe um, in the yeshiva. And later on, uh, he becomes a a a rabbi. And it was a re- rather rare story in the annals of the Hasidic movement is that his students in his yeshiva are the ones who kind of appointed him as the rabbi. It wasn't a community. It wasn't that you know he didn't market it as such. But his students uh, were so in, in, enraptured by him, and his, he was very charismatic and very close to his students, and he was kind of became uh, a rabbi. And he was actually the first Greenwald to act as a, an official Hasidic rabbi in that position, with the singing and the Shabbos and all the ceremonial aspects that go along with it. He passes away in 1941 and is succeeded by his son, Rabbi Yosef Greenwald, as the Pope Rav. He had previously been a rabbi in Satmar until then, actually. Um, so there's a lot of overlap in these towns that they, all these Greenwalds served in. In fact, in 1938, when he was still rabbi in Satmar, when his, when he, uh, when his, when, when his father was still alive, so he heard that Jews in New York were promoting an economic boycott against Romanian goods due to anti-Semitic policies of the Romanian government. So he and several other rabbis wrote a letter asking him not to include Shlivovitz in the boycott, as this would do significant damage to Jewish trade, because Jews were heavily involved in the Shlivovitz trade. So now we're on Pesach, and one of the only drinks you can actually drink is Shlivovitz, and we have to suffer through uh, that that plum brandy every Pesach. So you know that uh, you know once it was the mainstay of the Jewish economy in Romania during that time, so much so that they were scared of the economic boycott uh, that, that would be done on the other side of the ocean. So he succeeds his father uh, when he passes away in 1941 as the Pope of and then unfortunately 1944 he's deported, uh, even before that actually, he's deported to slave labor during the Holocaust, and in 1944 with the Nazi invasion, his wife and ten children were murdered in Auschwitz. So he's left alone, he survives the slave labor brigades, and following the war he returns to Popa, and he attempts to rebuild the community in Popa, and it didn't work out. Uh, so he moves to Antwerp in Belgium, and only in the 1950s does he move to Bar Park, and he rebuilds Puppa and the Puppa community over there um, in Brooklyn. I don't know if it was Bar Park or Williamsburg or both or whatever it was. Um, and he was also a Belzer Chassid, and he was close to the Satmarov as well, so it's a nice combination there post-war to be able to be close with both. is a pretty uh, pretty talented. Um, there were several more children of the Arugas Abaisim, but just one more focus uh, that we have in the time that we have left, because he gained some renown. He was the youngest son of the Arugas Abaisim, was Reblevi Yitzchak Greenwald. And he lived the longest, he lived close to 90, it was late 80s, um, and he served as rabbi in several towns, he was a prominent rabbi in Hungary, went from town to town, but he became famous for his last position in Europe, in our old friend, Salem, Deutschkreuz, that's where he was, and he became forever known as the Tzalem Arov, or the Tzalem Arov, or the Tzulem Arov, or however you pronounce it, and he was a huge Pisic, Amazing uh, communal rabbi and close with his community and very, very, almost basically world-renowned in halacha, in psak, um, already before the war and even more so in the post-war. Uh, now, by this time, the borders had changed and Salem was in Austria. 
So it fell under Nazi occupation with the Anschluss in March of 1938, March 12th, 1938, as the Anschluss, Austria becomes part of the Third Reich. So therefore, it's even before the war begins, the Jews of Austria are already on the run from the Nazis. So he was able to escape to the United States before the war breaks out. And he becomes one of the foremost Poiskim in the post-war United States. He was especially active in the field of Kashrus. He was a pioneer of what we would call today, and it's so common today, but he was pretty much the first one to do it, um, of what we would call the Heimish uh, Heksher, or the Frum Heksher, or the more stringent, uh, extra special Heksher, uh, better than all the regular mainstream ones. So he was the one who, was a, who started that, and he, you know, it's so, it's so popular today, and he was a pioneer in that, and working on his own with almost no funding. He was a pioneer in Chalav Yisrael. And he was he was adamant that 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 one that his community they drink only Cholav Yisrael. In fact, there's an amazing letter from the 1950s when this wasn't so easy to get. Uh, he wrote a letter that someone who is supervising Cholav Yisrael does not have to daven with a minion. And he said he adds there a line. He said, and if it's going to prevent him from supervising the milking the Cholav Yisrael milk. Then he doesn't have to dive it all together if that's necessary. He says, as long as we have Chol Yisrael, because we can't, we can't drink uh, regular milk. It's a, he 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 took a very strong and stringent uh, stance on that, and therefore he was able to build. Not only did he build the Salem community after the war, but he was a, a architect of Kashrus as well. And um, so the the um, the uniqueness, and if we take a look, a step back at the, all these green walls and the Hungarian rabbinate during that generation, right before the war and through the war, and then in the rebuilding afterwards in the new milieu of of Brooklyn in uh, in in across the ocean in a new world, the uniqueness is that there's these entire communities of Hasidim that are essentially were followers of Hungarian rabbis who originally had non-Hasidic Oberland roots. Um, so it's a, in, in general, I always look at it as a bit of a paradox of contemporary Jewish life that half the people who are affiliated today with the Hasidic community actually have origins in the non-Hasidic uh, Hungarian Oberland, whereas in the yeshiva community who consider themselves Litvaks, uh, many of them have actually Hasidic origins in Poland or in uh, in Ukraine or in Galicia or in uh, Hungary. So it's all good. It's a melting pot. We know the United States is a melting pot and Ben-Gurion wanted Israel to be one as well. It's a good question if he succeeded. But either way, the melting pots are, are working in that uh, community affiliation and identity is fluid and flexible since the war. So this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, tours, trips, sponsorships, lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.